The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles in, if you would, to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5. And several weeks ago, in the beginning of this study, I remarked that most people are interested to understand how this world will end and what will happen to us after we die. Uh, some of you older folks may remember the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. That was a long, long time ago, and some of you younger folks uh, that don't remember it are still affected by it. Sometimes I forget how old I am, and when I mention a date or someone previous to the time that some of you were born, I get this blank stare on people's faces like, what are you talking about? But this is important. Uh, in 1962, uh, our, our nation was gripped with fear when Fidel Castro parked nuclear warheads, Soviet nuclear warheads, uh, off the coast of Florida in Cuba, just 90 miles from our coast. And that sparked fear in the United States, and that's because only 17 years earlier, we had unleashed devastating destruction upon Japan. And that memory of a nuclear uh, war or nuclear bombs that were dropped and the destruction from them was still very, very fresh in people's minds. And so that caused many people to be afraid. The Cuban Missile Crisis was at the height of the Cold War when the U.S. and the Soviet Union were trying to maintain nuclear superiority over the other and to keep from uh, mutual nuclear destruction. And though that crisis was abated at that time, the fear of a nuclear holocaust still lingers because other countries uh, in this world, around the world, have also acquired nuclear capabilities. And there are some people who believe that that is the way that this world will end, that it will end in a nuclear holocaust. Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul wrote, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now there, the Bible says that sudden destruction will come. Now, in these past weeks, we've described Paul's meaning, which has taken us through many sermons, describing what will happen when God ends this world. There is a great tribulation that will take place when the Lord removes his church out of the world. And for a period of seven years, God will purge the world to prepare it for a golden age in which the kingdom of Christ will be established. And that is Christ's kingdom upon this earth where he will reign for 1,000 years in perfect peace where there is never a threat of nuclear war or of any other kind. Now, we're not going to discuss the kingdom further today. We pretty much ended that, uh, that discussion last week. But I would like to return for just a moment to the thoughts of how the kingdom ends. Now, if you'll look at Revelation chapter 20, we're going to spend the rest of our morning and a little bit of the afternoon in this chapter. At the end of 1,000 years of perfect peace, after 1,000 years of Satan chained in the abyss, God 
is ready to bring the physical kingdom to its close. And on the earth, there are people that are living in sin, or there are people that are sinners. 1,000 years of perfect conditions results in a population explosion, and all of these people that are born to natural parents are natural sinners. All of them have the fallen human nature passed to them just as we uh, do today. And so God must do something with all of these sinners to close out the history of the world. And these aren't innocent people. There is no sinner that is innocent. And God's method to end their physical existence is to release Satan from his restraints in the abyss and then to bring about his and their destruction. The account of this is in Revelation 20, beginning in verse number 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now the kingdom is born out of seven years of tribulation and it ends in another, in another tumult. The violence of God's destruction of the wicked who are burned up as fire falls down from heaven. Satan and his demons are also destroyed and they're cast into the eternal fires of Gehenna hell. And you remember in, in our text of 1 Thessalonians that Paul wrote in chapter 1 that wrath is coming. And in chapter 5, verse number 3, he speaks of destruction. And while this destruction does refer to the wrath that falls during the tribulation, we also need to understand that the wrath of God goes far beyond just what happens in the physical world. It's more comprehensive than what happens to people in physical bodies, but it also includes the destiny of their souls. And that is the most important because the soul is an everlasting creation. This life, the life that we live now, is not the extent of the soul. And so you must be very concerned about what happens to your soul. Your soul is the real you. Your body is just a house for your soul. And if I might read from our Statement of Faith, Article 18, this is the last few phrases of the article that's entitled, Of the World to Come. It says, Christ will personally return to the earth with his saints to rule in a messianic kingdom for 1,000 years, at which end the wicked will be adjudged to endless punishment, and that this judgment will fix forever the final state of the lost in hell on principles of righteousness. Now I want you to pay attention to that final phrase. It says the wicked will be adjudged to endless punishment, and that this judgment will fix forever the final state of the lost in hell. So Paul said, there is destruction, there is final destruction that will come upon those that don't believe. They will be destroyed in hell in endless punishment. The Bible teaches that they won't be burned up, they will not be annihilated, but they will suffer in hell forever. I mean, just as we read in Isaiah 66 a few minutes ago, and Jesus quoted in the New Testament, their worm does not die. That means they're... They are in hell forever and burning in hell and suffering in hell forever. 
Uh, Every person needs to be concerned about this. If you want to know what happens after death and what happens at the end of this world, this must be a person's chief concern. The chief concern is not the mechanics of it, how it will happen. The chief concern is not, is it going to be a nuclear holocaust? The chief concern are the people. The chief concern is those who are affected by this, who are the subjects of it. Where you spend eternity is the thing that you need to know the most. Now, the next phase of our study of the great and terrible day of the Lord takes us into the reality of eternal judgment. I'm not going to do a complete study on hell at this time. We've done that twice in the past five years. But what I would like to talk to you about is judgment. That there is a difference between the judgment of the redeemed and the judgment of the lost. Both are judged on principles of righteousness. Now, the redeemed are judged based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and they'll never be condemned because Christ is perfectly righteous. But the unbeliever is judged on his own righteousness, of which we have none, and so the unbeliever will most certainly be condemned to the fires of hell. And Paul's warning here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is for the unbeliever, and so we're going to limit our our discussion of this and concentrate on the judgment of unbelievers. So if you keep your Bibles open here to Revelation 20, we need to go on to, to discover what is the most sobering, the most frightening, and the most solemn words of Scripture for those who don't know Christ. Now you are aware, so most of you are saved people, or maybe all of you are, uh, you know that the Bible is the story of the redemption of man. It's the story of how Christ came to save sinful man and to restore him to fellowship with God. But the Bible also tells us what happens to those who are, who are in unbelief and will not be restored. What happens to them? Well, it gives us the answer. They will meet God in judgment where they will be forever condemned in their sins. In Revelation 20 verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now here we're reading John's vision of the end times. He saw seven years of tribulation that we've discussed. He saw a passing glimpse of the millennial kingdom. There's not much said about that in Revelation, although there is some. And this passing glimpse that he saw must have thrilled his heart because through that he understood that the promise that God made to Israel would most certainly come true. There would be a restored kingdom in which Israel would, uh, would rule. He saw the destruction of Satan who is cast into hell. And now in this part of his vision, he sees a courtroom where people are standing before God's tribunal. And I'm sure that John was very familiar with courtrooms. He was nearby 
when Jesus was taken to a mock trial by the Jewish council. He was just outside of Pilate's judgment hall where Pilate pronounced a verdict upon Jesus. Pilate declared him not guilty when he said, I find no fault in this man. But he was also there when he heard Pilate give an unjust condemnation of Jesus and send him to the cross because of the, of the hatred of these bloodthirsty Jews who wanted him killed. And that cross upon which Jesus hung, that was also a courtroom. And it was a different courtroom from, from most that you see because here the innocent suffer for the guilty. And that is God's judgment upon his son because the sins of all believers were placed on him. God poured out his wrath on his son so that wrath would not come on those that Jesus died for. And now John sees this courtroom for all of those whose sins were not satisfied at the cross. This is the condemnation of the guilty. There is no payment for their sins. And so they must suffer the punishment that's due him because do them because of their sins. I think most of you are familiar with courtrooms. You might not have been in a courtroom, but surely you've seen one. You've seen it on TV or you've seen it in the movies. I've been in the courtroom a time or two. I was called upon to be a, a witness in a trial one time. And I've been in a courtroom for speeding, which might greatly surprise some of you. But in every courtroom, we expect that we see a prosecutor for the state and there is a defense attorney for the accused. And the outcome of every trial is a verdict. Either it's a verdict of guilty or one of not guilty. But this courtroom that we observe in this text is different. There is no defense attorney. There is only a prosecutor. And the prosecutor just also happens to be the judge. And there's only one verdict in this trial, in this courtroom, and that is the verdict of guilty. There are no appeals to this court because it is the highest court. And because the judge is perfect and because his law is clear and because the law was clearly violated and because the punishment has been set all the way back from the time before any of us were born, this is going to be a verdict of death. Always the transgression of God's law brings eternal death. Now one of the amazing aspects of this trial is the vast number of people that are there. There are multitudes. There are billions from the beginning of human history up until the end, who never thought that this day would come. Most of them thought there would be no judgment, and if there is one, they thought that they would be okay, or at least they would escape punishment because they're mostly good, and they're better than most other people, so surely they won't be punished. Now clearly they, they missed the scripture that says that there is none good, no not one that all have gone out of the way, and that all are hostile enemies of God. And though they've judged themselves to be good enough that they won't be punished, it turns out they're not the judge. They never feared this courtroom, and they never feared punishment because they thought that they would be judged on their opinions of themselves. But their opinions don't matter, only God's. Now it's remarkable that there was a Harris poll that revealed that only 1% of people who believe there is a hell believe they're going there. And of course, there are many people who don't believe there is a hell. And so by the numbers, hell must be the most deserted place in existence. But in our text of verse number 12, John says, And I saw the dead. 
And the dead here are all those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Of course, there are vast numbers of people who have never even heard of Christ, and so they didn't believe in him. And some have heard of Christ, and they claim to believe in him, but they don't believe in the Christ of the Bible. They believe in a different Christ. And still there are others who just claim there is no hell. They mockingly reject Jesus Christ as it is they believe a fairy tale. Well, the certainty of judgment of all these is well established in the scriptures. First Samuel chapter 2 verse 10 says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. In Psalm 9, the Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Higion Selah, the wicked shall be turned into hell, and all nations that forget God. Now those are only two of multiple scriptures in the Old Testament that speak of, of uh, judgment and of hell. And lest you believe the Old Testament is just old and so it doesn't apply, the New Testament is filled with references, many of them that were made by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Just a sampling, Matthew 5.22, But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in the danger, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Matthew 12, 36. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. In John 9, 39, Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see, see not, might see, and that they which see, might be made blind. And that's just a minute portion of Jesus' statements about judgment and hell. And then the Apostle Paul, when he preached, is he went about the empire, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Judgment and hell, uh, punishment, that's often a part of his theme, the theme of his messages. In Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now remember, John sees this scene that's in the future. Uh, he must have been stunned to see so many that stand before God. John saw this scene after many centuries had passed. As I say, it's in the future. And there are many before him that had died. There are many after him that had died. And I'm sure he had no imagination of how many people there are that have lived all over the world. I mean, what John knew of the world was just a very small part where he lived with no ability to travel around the world to see other parts of the world or the vast expanses of the world. He had no idea how many people live in the world. And certainly from, from the time that God created man, John would not know how many people have lived in the world. And so he's here and he looks out over this sea of faces and he sees this great crowd as they dip and they cower as they hear the verdict being read. There's a wave, there's a ripple that goes through the crowd like the sea as it moves. And it looks like the amber waves of grain as they blow across the wheat fields. And what John sees extends all the way to the horizon as far as he can see. Now in the next few messages we'll discuss the scene that ends the great and terrible day of the Lord. 
There is a judgment that comes on the earth, but there is also this. There is a judgment that comes upon lost souls. Now, in these past weeks, I've spoken of thrones. You remember that in the millennial kingdom, there are thrones. Jesus Christ will sit enthroned in the new temple in the millennium in Jerusalem. The apostles will sit on thrones. The word says that they will judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Believers from the Old and the New Testaments and those that were saved during the tribulation, they will be given authority as judges and they also will sit on thrones. So we've talked about those thrones, but now I'd like to speak to you of a different one. Now we speak about the contrast of the thrones. I mean the difference in the thrones of the millennium and the throne of God in heaven and this throne that we read about here pictured in Revelation 20. Verse 11 says, There is a great white throne. And this one is different from all the other thrones in Revelation. The King James Version has 32 verses that refer to thrones. And perhaps the one that we think about the most would be God's ruling throne. You read about that in Revelation chapter 4, where it is a throne that is surrounded by an emerald rainbow. And around this throne, there are angels who are the seraphim who proclaim the holiness of God. And there are 24 other thrones that surround this throne. And on those thrones, we believe, sit representatives of the, of the Old Testament patriarchs, the believers of the Old Testament. And there are also 12 representatives of the church age. They sit on these 24 thrones that surround God on the Emerald Throne. The Emerald Throne is where God is worshipped unceasingly. Forever and ever, God is worshipped. It's the throne where myriads of the redeemed cry out before God, Worthy is the Lamb that is slain. This is the throne where there are an innumerable number of angels covering their faces with their wings in wonder at the great God who redeemed fallen man. Revelation chapter 5 says that there are 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands who say worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. The Bible describes that the emerald throne has a sea of glass before it that reflects the glory of God. And might I say... Who is the person who thinks that he can stand before this throne and stand before the holy and righteous God and give a good account of himself? How could, he, how could a man give a good account of himself when, and think that he's worthy to stand before this throne, before the one who is all worthiness and deserving of all glory and is all perfection? And so there's none who stands before God who has been brought to this place except by the blood of the Holy One of Israel. None are there except those who have been made new creation, creations in Christ. None are there but those who are born again by the Holy Spirit of God. So who dares think that they could ignore this scene and this God and His power by rejecting His Son? But this throne of Revelation 20 is not that throne, though it is a throne of righteousness and holiness. Those that stand before this throne are not redeemed. They are not born again. They are not holy and righteous. These are men and women and accountable children who have been coughed up from hell. Like putrid green phlegm from diseased lungs, they're spit out. They're vomited out of hell. And they stand before God. 
Where's the goodness in them? Isaiah describes in the first chapter, verse 6, From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. That is the way that God sees the unredeemed man in his sins. Now this is a different throne. The blackness of hell and the filth of sin is not permitted at the emerald throne. There is life at the emerald throne. But at this throne there is only death. This is a different place. There are no vibrant colors here. There is no beauty. There is no singing. There is no rejoicing at this throne. Here you find nothing but anxious fear. Here are people who have trampled under their feet the blood of Jesus Christ. And do you understand that? If there is anyone here today that's an unbeliever, this is what the Word of God says about you in the rejection of Christ. It says you have trampled His blood under your feet. Do you understand that you reject the grace of God and you say that the death of Christ doesn't matter? And so will you stand before this judge and say that the death of His Son means nothing? That it's inconsequential? Will you stand there and say that the cross and the rejoicing of the emerald throne is foolishness? It's not worthy to be believed? And all unbelievers will be judged this way because the corruption of their human heart and of their will says that God is not just, God is not right, God is not holy, God does not need to be believed. There isn't anything pleasant at this throne. The weeping, the lament, the anxiety, the trouble, it's just unbelievable. Now imagine for just a moment that you're not saved. And that you stand before this throne. And the time of your judgment arrives. Your case number 12,537,351 on the court's docket. And every verdict that you've heard before you is guilty. There's not a single exception. All that stand before you and have been judged, all that have gone before have been judged guilty. And each one of them is seized and picked up and carried away. And there are screams of torment that are heard as they're cast into the fires of hell. Would you hope to escape when the 12,537,350 before you didn't? All of them are condemned. This is a different throne than the emerald throne. Now let's look at a description of it. First, it's a great throne proportionally. A great in the scriptures is the Greek word megas. Most of you have heard of mega. It appears before a description of the lottery, the Mega Millions lottery. Now everybody in everybody in California is against MAGA, but they're for Mega, and that seems to be appropriate because their lot is to be in this lottery of judgment. They're all headed to destruction. And the Bible describes this throne as megas, great. That doesn't refer to its physical size, though I can very well imagine that it is great in size as it's seen by all those who stand before it. Rather, when it says it's great, it refers to its significance. It's great because there is no courtroom that has held so many. And it's great because no judgment has ever had such dire consequences 
And it's great because no judgment has ever been this encompassing. It's great because of its power. And it's great because of its sovereignty. It's great because of its intensity. It's great because of its, of its finality. And it's great because of its eternality. This is absolute. Here is the point of no return. After this, the lost are forgotten. And though they aren't in God's thoughts any longer that he would interact with them, though they are forgotten, they still exist. They exist. And they are forever hopeless. They are forever suffering. They will be there forever. Now, some people believe that God wipes away the memory of those that are in heaven. Those that are in heaven don't remember those that are in hell. Now you think about that for just a minute. We agonize over our loved ones who aren't saved, and well, we should. I mean, it's a horrible thing to think that your mom or your dad or your children, your brothers and your sisters would die and go to hell. And I think that if we truly understood that and we really believed the reality of this judgment, we would do a whole lot more, wouldn't we? I think we would do a lot more praying. I think we would shed many more tears. I think there'd be much more anguish and pleading for our loved ones to be saved. But in heaven, we're changed. There isn't any sorrow. There aren't any thoughts of discouragement. There's nothing there that causes anguish. And so you might ask the question, will you think of your loved ones in hell? And it might seem strange, but I think no. God glorifies your mind to see hell as he sees it. And if he doesn't regard the lost, and they're erased from his his thinking and from his interactions with him, do you believe his people that have perfect minds are going to be ravaged by the sorrows of hell? I can't explain all of that, but I can't believe that hell will be bothersome to anyone in heaven. And so perhaps God wipes away the memory of it. But on the other hand, the lost in hell are plagued forever with memories. How many sermons did they hear? How many opportunities did they have? How many slurs and mockeries did they make of Christians who only had one thing in mind? And that was that they wouldn't die and go to this awful place. And so the lost in hell are never released from hearing this final verdict over and over and over again in their ears. You are condemned forever to hell. Now secondly, and I close with this today, it is a white throne in purity. White stands for the absolute pure justice of God. Now, in human courtrooms, there's always a chance the verdict is wrong. O.J. didn't do it, they say. In human courtrooms, there's always the chance of inequity. Judges must weigh the evidence before them. Sometimes there isn't enough evidence to convict. and Sometimes they get it wrong, and sometimes the evidence runs contrary to the facts. You think how many people have been released from prison since the development of DNA evidence? You see, courtrooms don't always have all the facts. And the judges are fallible, and they rarely have all the details. Now, you remember the most famous judgment, perhaps, that's in the Scriptures? King Solomon judged between two women who both claimed that a living child was their own. Both of the women had babies, but one of them died and the other one lived. And both of the women claimed that the living child was hers. Solomon didn't know. They, they appeared before Solomon to judge, and he didn't know. He didn't have DNA evidence. 
But he did devise a, uh, an effective means of judgment. I'm not going to tell you that whole story. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 3. But he judged by the behavior of the women towards the living child. And so all that Solomon did was make a logical deduction. He was a wise man and he made a logical deduction. But God doesn't judge by logic. God knows. God has all the evidence. God has all the facts. He doesn't look at body language. He's not dependent upon man's testimony. And so there's zero chance that God will judge wrongly. He is omniscient. Scripture says this about judgment that's committed to Christ in Isaiah 11. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. Now that, that simply tells us God never gets it wrong. God does not get it wrong. There is no sin of any kind that escapes him. And then might I also add that this is a throne of justice. This is not a throne of mercy. Mercy has already been extended. Mercy was given when Christ became a substitute for our sins. The throne of mercy was rejected by all these. And so all there is left is a throne of justice. Oh, how many people plead, God, just give me what I deserve People judge themselves worthy, and they ask for justice. And God holds up the commandments, and he says, well, which one of these have you kept? And the answer is none of them. What do they deserve? Oh, you never want to ask for justice from God, not until you first pled for his mercy and have been given the righteousness of Christ by faith in him. W.A. Criswell wrote about the contrast of the emerald throne and the great white throne. He said, in Revelation 4, John saw seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which seven lamps are the seven spirits of God. At that throne of grace, John saw the intercessions, the groaning, the prayers, the pleadings of the Holy Spirit of God. But not here. There is no longer any intercession. There is no longer any pleading of the Holy Spirit. For the day of God's grace has forever and finally ended. Now, some of you might ask, well, what about those that never heard of Christ? Is it just for God to condemn those that have never heard of Christ? And I'll say this, that they're not judged for their rejection of Christ because they've not heard of him. If you read Romans 1, you'll discover that all such people that have not heard of Christ do, in fact, reject the creator God. They worship the creature rather than the creator. They worship self and they declare themselves to be good people, and the Bible says they break every moral law that's written on their heart. And so they reject the light of conscience. And, and if they haven't done what the heathen does in worshiping idols and creatures and men, they still believe in their own worth. Well, how did Paul deal with that? These questions that we asked just now, how does he deal with it? Well, he strikes down all this reasoning in Romans chapter 2. And he says, therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? 
Or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up to thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. God is good. God is forbearing. His goodness allows time and space for repentance. But all mankind willfully rejects the goodness of God so they are without excuse. Unless you should disagree with this and you still say, well, I don't think that's fair. Then remember who you are and who God is. Your protests go no higher than the ceiling. They're lost in the air as soon as they leave your mouth like sound waves that dissipate in the wind. Your disagreement with God amounts to nothing. So we've got to get this straight. God is the judge. He judges on his principles, not ours. And so what we must do is look into the word of God and see the principles on which God judges. We must see what God demands. And then we must conform our thinking to his standards. Now, as I close, though, on that thought, I emphasize that we're all incapable of his righteous standard. Only Jesus was capable of it. And so God sent his son because of the total inability for us to escape judgment in hell. And so God gives an offer of salvation that stands good for every person. And he simply tells the sinner, repent, repent and come in faith to Jesus Christ. Trust him and trust only him. And it says you will be delivered from the wrath to come. Judgment is coming. It's inevitable. And even more sure, if possible, than judgment is the offer of forgiveness. Sure is life in the Son who gave himself to redeem us from all of our iniquities. The power of Christ's resurrection is greater than the power of death. And so God says today that you can choose life. Today, he says, you can come to Christ and you can plead for your soul. And I make that offer today because God does. But I make no offer of the same tomorrow. And that's because God doesn't guarantee the life of any person. Certainly, he doesn't guarantee the life of the lost for tomorrow. And so the message of Scripture, the pleading of Scripture is, trust Christ today. Be saved. And to be safe, you must Trust Christ today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you confessing our sins and knowing, Lord, that we are so unworthy of the manifold graces of God. Lord, we know that we can't ask for justice, not without Jesus Christ. The only way that we can be just is by belief in him. And if we stand before you without the righteousness of Christ, then we get exactly what these scriptures describe. We get the punishment the awful death of an endless hell. Lord, I pray for Christians here today, those who claim Christ, and perhaps they don't live as Christians, and going to church is a mundane thing, really doesn't mean a whole lot, and there isn't much evidence of a Christian life outside of this place. May they know assuredly that if there is no proof of salvation, there is no salvation. People that believe are changed, and that evidence will be there. Lord, I pray that we would each examine our own hearts to see that the evidence is there, that we are true believers in Jesus Christ, because surely we would not want to leave this service today after hearing this and knowing the truth of it, 
go out of here without, without responding to the plea that's been made to trust Christ for the eternal salvation of our souls. Help us, if we are all saved, to give this message to others who need to hear it. Bless us today, Lord. We praise your name for your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.